So Natalie Ward, welcome to Macquarie Street Matters. Natalie, you're the Deputy Leader of the New South Wales Parliamentary Liberal Party. You're the Shadow Minister for Transport and Roads and Infrastructure. You've got responsibility for the Illawarra and the South Coast. And there's been a little bit in your Bally Week recently, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But let's go to you. I didn't realise that you'd grown up in South Australia. That is true. Yeah, bodies in the barrels and great uh, Penfolds Grange wine. So we, we do it all. But uh, yeah, proudly from South Australia. And now, was uh, your dad a wine grower? He was, yeah. He had St Francis Winery in the McLaren Vale. So uh, just near Hardy's uh, and uh, grew up in a wine growing family. I, I probably should have stuck with that, but chose politics. Uh, well, very instead. sort of, I've, I imagine that wine growing is has this perception to outsiders of being very chilled and you get to, you know, drink wine all the time. But Presumably it's quite a bit more difficult and it's, complicated than yeah, that. Yeah, it's hard yakka. And in fact, it was a small business. Uh, and in the time of the recession that we had to have, when I was at university working with my dad, that was a really tough time for Australia. And yeah. I see what's going on now with the economy. And I'm getting kind of chills thinking about the rumblings then and what happened. But I grew up in that era. He uh, kept the business, kept everybody employed and kept going through that really difficult time. We actually lost our home rather than giving up the business. So that was a really tough choice. And that's part of the reason and uh, I, I think, went on this political journey and joined the Liberal Party because of John Paul Keating's recession that we had to have that I disagreed with so much. Just for, you know, maybe younger members of our audience, uh, this was in the early 1990s mm. when Australia went into recession. Paul Keating, who was then Federal Labor Treasurer, famously said, I think many people regarded as flippantly and heartlessly, mm. this is the recession we had to have. We actually, I don't think it's wrong to say that we led the world into that recession. Mm. We were in that recession for longer than anyone else. The economy really didn't start to pick up until 1996, 1998. Uh, The housing market was still incredibly flat. So people can understand today, we have uh, single-digit interest rates. That's right. But in the early 1990s, the federal Labor government had control over interest mm-hmm. rate policy, not the Reserve Bank. That was a an independence which Joe Hockey, I think, or maybe yes. Peter Costello, sorry, getting my federal Liberal treasurers wrong. I think it was Peter Costello yeah. introduced after John Howard became um, Prime Minister in 1996 and the coalition governed. But interest rates were... Uh, 15, 16 percent. No, no, 19%. I think that was the business rate, but I think the mortgage rate was 15 or 16 percent. Yeah, so if you've got, you know, we talk about right now with fixed interest going from, say, you know, one and a half, two percent up to four and six percent, and that is really hard. You know, that is really difficult to manage, and a lot of people are finding that choice between managing that mortgage, paying that loan, and all the other costs of living, particularly when prices are going up, inflation's up, it's really tough. But I remember, and the reason I say I have chills back to that time is because I remember my dad saying, how do you find overnight the money to go from 7% to 19 he, he always quoted me, 19%. That was the business rate I think that was for the their business. business. Rate, yeah. yeah. How do you find that extra money in a recession when business is low, people are not uh, spending money on wine and holidays and uh, all the other things that make the economy run? And, and you're quite right. When Paul Keating, uh, you know, my view is that the, the job of government is to look after the people that are elected. That's why we're here. 
to make a difference to people's lives and improve their lives and what government can do for them. When he, as you say, flippantly said, it's a recession we had to have, it just stank of arrogance and belittlement for people that were really struggling to keep things going. And okay. I remember the, the conversation, you know, Dad honestly sat down, we had a family meeting, he said, well, you know, we can fold the business and I can walk away, but I don't want to do that because I've got employees that rely on me and this is a family business that we all love. We're going to have to sell our house and move and it's going to be really hard. And we decided as a family to do that to keep the business going. I think that ultimately contributed to why uh, he, he got ill at a young age and ultimately I think the stress got to him. Now that's very personal and uh, I can't believe you've got me being so personal so quickly. <laughs> a great interview, Alistair. But, but that says to me and it informs my view of the world now about what, what is happening and why we need to be so proactive at the moment and be conscious of cost of living because a lot of us do have those memories. And and just, just to sort of reiterate what you're saying because... What you've just described is so typical of so many people who were small business people at the time. Many of them flooded to the Liberal Party as, as the party that kind of understood small business. But, but you know, I think Brendan Nelson had, ha, has told me, you know, he had many medical practices in Tasmania at the time. And, and so many people have told me of the burden of having your house mortgaged to the hilt and securing your business debt and being put in the position where the bank's saying to you, you're going to have to sell your house and reduce this debt because you're not servicing the debt. It was a terrible time for so many people, huge stress, huge imposition on families and a huge imposition on the entrepreneurial spirit of the Australian community. There's a real damage that's done by recessions, isn't there? Mm, and there is a real damage. It's generational. You don't recover from that quickly. But also the human price that is paid. People that you know aren't able to cope with that. Mm. My dad, you know, had had been an entrepreneur. Had set this, bought this old winery, did it up. Uh, was uh, commercial about it. Put in uh, a hotel and resort complex. You know, really built it up. And that was a big employer in the area. And one of those things that we 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 herald in. Australia we love that you know giving it a go and it was something that we were all very proud of but he took that hard decision he said it would be much easier just to, to walk away from it and we can start again but none of us wanted to do that and that's informed I think a lot of my approach to, to what we do in politics and how we look after people and what our job is is mm. to really government's job is to step in and do better and help people to get through these times and you know I think we're very conscious of that you yeah. know in what we do here in New South Wales. Well you and I have worked in the private sector and, and I guess what a lot of people don't understand is that when you build up a business, whether it's a legal practice or, or another business, it, it is a bit like bringing up a child. Like it, it, is, yes. it is a part of you and it is a really important part of you. So I can sympathise with people like your father and others at that time who kind of lost something that they'd put their heart and soul into and built up yes. through that recession. So that must have been an incredibly difficult time. Well thankfully we didn't lose the business, we kept it going and, and that was uh, a real mark of success ultimately getting there but at a time that you know you, you remember these things in the time in your life and it really did inform my political view, I was at university, I was working a few jobs and uh, like my contemporaries like so many of us you know you work really hard to build something up and that's why you know I wasn't afraid to, to go into legal practice and you know David uh, set up a, a small legal practice, we've both been at large firms and we've done the large firm thing and then when set up a small practice 
practice. And as you say, it is, it's your reputation, it's your baby. Uh, you're creating something, you're employing people. And that's the difference uh, that we really mm. have and something I'm proud of in the Liberal Party because we really uh, want to support individuals to do that, to be self-sufficient. And that's all people want. They want to be able to be self-sufficient. They want to own their home and provide for their families wherever that is in Australia. And we should find the infrastructure and the way to get them through. And I think we did that incredibly successfully through COVID. You know, you remember as a government, we really wrapped around small business. We stepped in everywhere with the federal government. I hadn't, we, we supported micro businesses and, and single person business. We really, you know, plugged all of those holes to get people through that stage. And I'm proud of that as a government that we really took those steps and we were fiscally responsible in the good times to be able to have the money there. And that is not just about economic responsibility. It's about people's lives and livelihood and I, you know you're quite right I think it's something that informs our approach and you know you, you go from legal practice and what you're doing and you're seeing the problems that people have in their lives and part of what you're doing is holistic about trying to help solve those problems and get them through mm. to the other side and in politics we do that in a slightly different way but uh, I think it's important and incumbent on all of us. One of the things that I've always had difficulty grappling with is that the kind of the Marxian theory of, of labour and capital sees the workplace as a place of perpetual conflict between workers and and they talk about management who's aligned with the owners of of capital and and you still hear that rhetoric come out of the labor party but when you've actually worked in a small business you understand that a small business is a partnership between everyone that works in there that the employees rely upon the business owner to provide them with an income and a job and hopefully a good place of work and and the the owner relies upon their staff to add the value to to make the business successful as well so it's really mm. much more a partnership mm. than a conflict and i feel like that's one a really essential difference of world view mm. between say the labor party on the one hand and the Liberal and, and National Parties on the other. Totally agree, Alistair, and it's one of those things that we herald, you know, that uh, you know, good businesses do well and they look after their people and it is a partnership. You look at great family businesses from a local fruit shop or a deli uh, through to generational, through to professional services, they really are a family and you see in the next generation, they value that so much, is a good ethical company that they can work for and be proud of the reputation of. It's not just about the money, it's not just about the job, it's about the whole reputation how ethical they are, how well they treat uh, their people and their supply chains. You're seeing that uh, in mm. modern slavery and a whole range of other ways. You're buying, buying well and buying uh, you know, conscientiously. And I think it's one of those things that once you've been in a good family or a good business, you understand the partnership that that is. But it reminds me of that scene from Mad Men, you know, where she goes in and she's really angry with him and she says, you know, but you never thank me. And he said, the money is to thank you. You know, it was that kind of real 60s view of the world. Yeah. But, you know, I think we've evolved a long way and thankfully but I agree with you the difference in outlook between uh, those parties that think that you're there to tell people how to do it and take control of everything uh, and taking away that choice from the individual that we herald so much you know I respect your choice to do what you want in the way that you want to and your choice to do it in the way that you want to and I similarly and for my children and their children and the generations before me it's really important that you empower people and I can't understand this worldview that the employer and employee should have this combative relationship we have to fight for your rights and fight for entire I mean, success is shared, and they say, you know, rising tide, all boats, you know, rise, and it's true. I think that you know, the next generation really is informing me and inspiring me that they will flock to good 
employers. They will flock to good businesses mm. who look after them and have a bigger worldview. And thank goodness that uh, we're at that place. But yeah, there really is some retrospective views. And my daughter's doing HSC at the moment. We're talking about you know world wars and worldviews and how people you know change and society changes through those challenges. And uh, she really you know it informed me about some of those communist views and some of the worldviews that were very dangerous about you know the state will tell you how it is and you just don't worry your pretty head and do as you're told. And we still see some regimes in the world that are operating that way. Well, extreme leftist ideology is still incredibly perspective about how you are to think and behave and Mm. speak and all the rest of it. So, I mean, we haven't lost that in our community. They may not be waving the hammer and sickle, but (laughs) but there's still a degree of that inflexibility and and sort of tyrannical mindset Mm. within our community. So just going back to your personal narrative, so... Was it the law that took you to New South Wales and Sydney? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I practiced for a while at um, Interallison in, in South Australia and then I was on my way. I was actually heading to London and my dad said to me, it's a long in those days, it's a long way away and it's very expensive. Why don't you just have a bit of time in Sydney and get some experience and then go on your way? And and so I did and I just fell in love with Sydney and fell in love with the bloke as well. So I stayed here but uh, still you know, love love the world. But it, yeah, the law is my first passion because I really felt that I, I, I got to uni and I, I seem to get it and I, I love the mm. advocacy of the law I love that you, you can pick a side and you can really stand for something and you can achieve an outcome whether by negotiation or fully contested litigation you know and I, I love the litigation of it because you can get to an outcome but yeah love love the law and we have that in, in common yeah. we very often have those conversations so was that your main practice area was it litigation yeah yeah, yeah okay. commercial litigation I loved and I just asked well, felt a real passion for the forensic side of it and uh, really putting a case together and arguing a case. And, and to me, it's not dissimilar to being in here where you, you're advocating for something or you're arguing mm. against or you're trying to get to a point where you can have a meeting of minds on legislation or on something else. But, you know, equally, it's a bit like sport. You know, you pick a side and you, you go for that side. So yeah, I really love the advocacy of it. I love the, the, the intellectual debate of it. And I love, you know, being able to contest ideas. And that's something I love about a policy. As well. Now, I think in your inaugural address, you said oh, it was at Adelaide University that you signed up for the Young Liberals. And <laughs> so, so you've you've also got this other strain in your life. It's not just law and legal practice. You've also been politically interested and active from a relatively young mm-hmm. age. Obviously, that went to a point where you then left the law and started becoming a political staffer. When, mm. when, when was that? Yeah, that was in the um, well, last time we were in opposition. I'm going to age myself woefully. But, yeah, I was really interested in politics, came here, was working professionally and then got involved um, with uh, an upper house member who said come in and do some work. And that was Greg Pierce, and Greg is a great mentor, a lawyer as well, of course. And he taught me how to read budgets. He taught me about what the budget estimates process was, taught me about how to forensically read annual reports and research and find an argument about the process. And uh, in between, I, I went back to law and I had a couple of kids and came and went. But I, I reckon the best education for politics is being in opposition because you learn how to do yeah. everything and how to how to really forensically uh, challenge the government and its agenda. Uh, and then I was privileged enough 
enough to, when we got into government in 2011, to work for Greg in his ministerial office. And that was great experience by someone uh, who really believed uh, in me. And, and for me, it was an extension of the law and the advocacy, but for, for something I was passionate about. Mm. And having a great mentor and someone who's prepared to teach you these things and you can ask questions of is critically important it's in the journey. It's incredibly important. Yeah. And, yeah. and Greg was, I think, a partner at Freehills, wasn't yes, he, before yeah. he came into Parliament? And then he was the first finance minister in 2011 when the coalition yeah, came right. to power. Yeah. And so you you then came into parliament towards the end of 2017, I think. That's that right? right, yeah. And in your inaugural speech, you sort of, you, you, you spoke a lot about your family and you also spoke a lot about wanting to, you know, get the work family balance going and you kind of made some advance apologies. Did did did, did you do <laughs> oh, better? Gosh. Did you do better? Do you think than uh, than the apologies? Uh... No, no. In fact, I should apologise more. Gosh, it's embarrassing. You've really done your research. You're amazing. But yeah, no, I, I apologise to my kids over and over. They are my uh, best constituents, most critical. And uh, but yeah, it is tough. You know, is your being... daughter your oldest? She no, she's my youngest, okay. and she's doing HSC now, right. and my son's at uni now, okay. doing law. Okay. And um, very good. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's it's such a journey, but it really is something that you you have to juggle uh, the commitments that you mm. have, and if you have a forgiving family who will put up with sort of what you, the demands on your time, uh, that is phenomenal. But they're also the greatest arms you can run back home to after a tough day or yeah. a tough week, and it's incredibly important. But you know, I feel like this is a family in here as well, and you know, you really rely on the people you mm. work with and the people. You're along, you stand alongside um, in this journey and it's such a great privilege and I hope ultimately that one day they're proud of me and proud of the contribution but I know along the way it's really tough and there can be times when I know they really don't understand why, um, why you know you have the late nights and the early starts and you're not around so much. My mum who I should have apologised to as well who I don't get to see as much as I want but she'll text me and, and say I saw you on TV so that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well the upper house too that you're in has quite challenging hours mm. uh, by comparison to Legislative Assembly. You and I were sworn in as ministers on the same day yeah. in 2021. Yeah, it's great. Uh, we had the great privilege of being ministers in in the government yeah. before before we went into opposition this year. Was that a good experience for you? It was phenomenal. It was such a privilege. And to, yeah, it was a privilege to stand beside you on that day and a great mind that I admire and someone that I, you know, I come to you for advice and to test ideas. But, I, you know, I think we also speak a bit of the same language, you know, being lawyers and, and being mm. from that background, you do have an analytical approach to things. But to sit around the cabinet table, I know we can't speak about what was said there, but with the great minds that are there with the best of intentions, where mm. you can have really robust discussions and you always had great contributions to make. And I admire that and I learn from that and I think the opportunity uh, the great privilege you have to serve in this role and it is about service but to come up with those great ideas and have the chance to implement them have them tested by your colleagues and tested by the public uh, and by the public service but to see some of these things come to life is the most magnificent experience you can ever have and not all of it will make the front page of of the papers or it won't all get a highlight but you can do some magnificent things and you know the great privilege of doing that together and you know I've seen the great work that you did while there too and we'll continue to to keep holding the government to account on the great work that we put in place and uh, hopefully some of it will continue. Well I think we were fortunate to understand some of the things that are becoming highly relevant now like what it's like to be a minister, how you manage conflicts of interest, what the ministerial code requires. We'll talk a little bit about that Mm. in a minute but 
we're recording this now at a time uh, where, although you're a big rugby family, the Matildas are going to play yes. England in the um, semi-final of the FIFA Women's World Cup. Can you believe how big this is? Now, we were both sports ministers yes. at different times. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it, it does bear saying, and, and I think it's important to say, the federal coalition and the state coalition were part of a joint venture which actually bid for the Women's mm. World Cup, and we secured that. Mm. One of the things that enabled New South Wales to have the games that it's having in this Women's World Cup is because we built Allianz Stadium and Parramatta Stadium, two stadiums objected to by the um, state Labor Party. In fact, they ran a whole election campaign against them. We never would have had this tournament if it was for them. If, if they'd been successful in 2019, we never would have got this tournament, but hasn't it been magnificent? That's exactly right. A magnificent world-class stadium, you know, 42,500 seats, $487 million on time, on budget. In fact, it was a month early. And the fact that this government, when we were in government, you know, we made the, the active decision on progressive sports ministers to bid on 10 World Cups in 10 years. You know, that ambitious view about what we want to get. And I think uh, we got more than 10. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, <laughs> so we've having had... a stadium there to do it, so you know? We've had, let's just think about some of the ones we've had. So we've had, we had last year, we had the World Cycling. Yes. Uh, we, we also had the the World's Women's Basketball yep. World Cup. Yep. We've now got the, the women, we've had the cricket, the yep. T20, and now we've got the football, yeah. and I've left some out because I didn't do my homework on this. Uh, no, 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 you, no, you've done really well, and but, you're a huge basketball <laughs> fan, I know. I am, and, you know, and, and that was great for this. And so, interestingly... The Women's Basketball World Cup had the largest audiences ever of a Women's World Cup in basketball. Is that right? And the Football World Cup with the Matildas yep. is the same, the yep. largest audiences ever. So, you know, we're, we're, we're punching above our... We yep. can definitely hold these international sporting events. We're showing up yep. Victoria for the imposters that they are. Exactly. They think that they're, you know, they're still living off the 1956 Olympics <laughs> in Melbourne, right. let's yeah. face it. And, and exactly. New South Wales is holding these great world championships, which mm. are doing incredibly well. We also had the World Cross Country. That's one yes, of the other ones that, I, oh that I've, uh, yeah, I left out. And I'm, I'm going to get some rude phone calls uh, <laughs> no, from no, people no. that but, I've, know, I, from sports that I've left so out. The fact that there's so many yes. that you're struggling to... I mean, you know, you've done incredibly well, but there are so many that are coming up and we are punching those out. And every single one of those, as opposed to one set of games, you know, every one of those attracts a new crowd and a next generation. And, you know, I watched the game with my daughter and we were... Could, you know, we were so stressed watching it like so many people, but the next generation of young women that will come yeah. out of that. And, you know, you as a know, you know as a sport, former sports minister that the importance of the next gen, you don't get Olympians without having local clubs, local grounds and local teams, which you were incredibly supportive of as minister. You know, supporting those local community sporting activities then gives you the next generation. Then they can play at a brand new Allianz Stadium, uh, thanks to this government. Then they can go to the Olympics. Well, and it's that generational stuff that we've just inspired. An incredible investment, but but really, it's a metaphor. And I know Australians love sport, um, but it's a, but it's a maybe a relatable metaphor. What what I really liked about the the coalition government, the twelve years of of coalition government in our state, of which we were privileged to be part mm. of, and and ministers towards the end, was the fact that it had 
It was always aspirational and looking to the future. That's it. So the, the infrastructure that we built, which was never built under Labor last time they were in, in, in government, the 110 billion plus infrastructure pipeline that we left as our legacy in March of this year when yeah. government changed, you know, the idea of 10 World Cups in 10 years probably seemed like a bit of a stretch at the time because yeah, we did because we had no idea whether we'd be able to win these yeah, tournaments yeah, that's right. but unless you set a metric like that you know to work towards you, you never achieve and that's a really important and you, thing and you're so right and this was about in generations of infrastructure this was 116 billion dollars of not our children but their children's infrastructure also remembering we had to catch up from years of labor doing nothing and announcing mm. announcing not doing anything we took those brave decisions over successive governments to take the fiscal choices and responsibility to set those things up and put them in planning to get them done and also to build them not, not just in liberal electorates but all across New South Wales, all across mm. the regions, you know, even down to our funding for potholes on roads. You know, we really went to every single council and looking at how we could support regions and support connectivity, but making sure, you know, we've got five new motorways will open every year for the next five years because we've put them in. Each of those are being built right now and Labor will cut the ribbons on those and I'm happy for those commuters that will be able to be on those new motorways. Third Harbour Crossing, I mean, that is visionary. This is stuff that, you know, I was proud of and Gladys used to say, you know, we want to inspire and delight and that's what government should be doing and Dom was always saying you've got to be big visionary great ideas don't come from doing the same thing and you know and having that connectivity and Rob Stokes talking about connectivity between cities it's not just about the road it's about the walkway it's about the cycling it's about mm. the active transport it's about integrating all of that and lighting and parks and making them women friendly and safe uh, and integrating a whole city view I think elevated us and we could stand there and be proud of the legacy that we're leaving for generations not just for the next election cycle. And I guess the thing that we would say to the discerning observer of government and politics is to recognise that if this Labor government is not starting projects, new projects, if they are cutting projects which are already in train, then that means that we as a state will hit a brick wall in uh, four or six years' time because this pipeline will mm. run out and there'll be nothing to replace it. And I think that's a really important thing for the community to understand because these things don't just happen. You, you actually need a driven government yeah. to make the metros, the light rails, you know, the, 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 the new infrastructure, yeah. the new roads, yeah. the, the new sporting facilities, yeah. the new community facilities, the new hospitals, the new schools, all of those things require someone to drive them. They don't just happen. And I think the new government is realising it is really hard to do mm. that. You know, Dom and I were talking during the campaign and he said, Nat, I think people just think that you know building all this infrastructure is business as usual but we remember when things were not being built they were promised and there were press releases remember the t-cards you know the former government announced they were going to have this t-card which never eventuated and that was millions of dollars we know that if we say we're going to do something you have to do it you plan for it you budget for it and you deliver it uh, which is why it's disappointing that this government feels that they can just turn the tap on and off with infrastructure it is not that easy you know and, and we'll get to specific projects but you know with metro for example that vision of having metro and ultimately to connect that it's fast it's efficient it's driverless which means it's unionless which i think some groups don't like the rtbu and the TWU. but you know this was a vision it's for strike proof 
That's it. And it's reliable, That's the which is incredibly important. Mm. The, 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 the story I always love about the Metro that Dom used to tell was that when Labor first promised the Metro, he was still in primary school <laughs> and he was already in Parliament by the time the Liberal government had to start yeah. it and build it, which I think um, says a lot. Yeah. Yeah, um, and he had seven kids in the meantime. So. Well, no, no, not that stage yet. But, uh, no, 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 by the time it's been built. That, that was a work built. in progress. That was a work yeah. in progress. He's been very busy. He, he's been very productive. He, he's, he's incredibly productive. Yeah. Now, 